Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Urinetown. How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. As always, Patty and Benny in the booth, one big podcasting family for the second week in a row, still over the moon in regards to that. But I have a follow-up. Patty, Benny, and I have been playing detective, and I'm going to take this slowly for any new listeners. Maybe this is your first episode. Maybe you're not really aware of what's been going on in the show's history, but Patty, Benny, and I, we put our ears to some doors, we put our noses to the grindstone, we did the work, because last week we were flummoxed by a question. There was some construction presumably going on upstairs. That's what we thought, at least. There was some hammering, there was some moving about, and we couldn't help but wonder what was going on. And so we we started investigating, and the answer to the mystery is weirder than we ever could have expected, and it's going to sound completely ridiculous. As you may or may not know, we have a contentious relationship, is that a nice way to put it, with another podcast that records in this very same studio, this self-same studio. It is a, I'm not, again, I don't want to give them the the advertising, I don't want to promote, I'm not going to give the name of the show. It's a podcast about tennis. And as I said, we've had, from the beginning, ever since we met the two guys who host this show, it has been a rocky ice cream road for all involved. They, They are very strange, they are very put off by us, they don't seem to understand the premise of this show. They seem to be really put off by the premise of this show. And we have they have left us notes, odd passive-aggressive notes about cleaning up the studio before we leave. They're, they're ridiculous. They are ridiculous men who host a tennis podcast. And we found out by snooping around, asking around, that there was no construction upstairs. In the, in the studio right above us, there was no construction. They were not remodeling. That was the tennis podcast recording an episode, and I swear to God, they brought in a guest who apparently makes tennis rackets, homemade, one-of-a-kind tennis rackets. It's the most, I don't, you know, usually use this word very often. I think it's a little generic and bland at this point, cliched, but hipster. It's a very hipster enterprise. But apparently this individual makes very expensive, one-of-a-kind tennis rackets, and he was making one in the studio right above us, live, for, you know, they were, I think they were doing a stream while recording at the same time. It's, I think they have a Patreon. I think they were doing it for their Patreon. That we cannot really, you know, we would have to talk to them directly to really confirm that, and we are not willing to do that. Uh, But (laughs) we were able to confirm, you know, we didn't complain. We didn't file a formal complaint. It was very annoying last week to hear that noise, but we didn't think it was really worth it to drag anyone into a meeting regarding the, the noise. We didn't think to complain because we thought it was construction, as we said. 
but other people did complain. Other people absolutely did complain. And apparently, keep this between all of us, <laughs> promise not to spread this nasty rumor, but apparently the tennis guys are now on some sort of probation? The story is just so funny to me. It's, it's sending me into a tizzy tailspin, I do say. But I don't know. I think it's hilarious that these guys, I don't know, they thought that they could get away with this. I mean, the recording studios are not that soundproof. I mean, this is a professional space, but I don't think the I don't think anyone was going to account for active construction. Hammer, hammer, hammer. Like it's just ridiculous. And that's, I mean, for all of you who are always wondering what's going on with the tennis podcast hosts, uh, anything going on with those guys? Any hot tea that you can spill? That's the hot tea. Uh, and it sounds, again, I know it sounds completely ridiculous, but there was a man making tennis rackets. <laughs> so that's, that's, you're all caught up. All right, new listeners are caught up, old listeners are caught up, we all know, we all know. Let's get the show facts for this week's subject. You're in town, show me the show facts. You're in town was a 2002 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on September 20th, 2001 at the Henry Miller's Theater and ran for 965 performances. The book was written by Greg Kotis. The music was by Mark Hallman. The lyrics were by Mark Hallman and Greg Kotis. The director was John Rando. The musical director was Edward Strauss. The choreographer, again, no specific choreographer credit, but we of course have a musical staging by credit, and that goes to John Carafa. Scenic design, we have scenic slash environment design. Scenic environment design by Scott Pask. Uh, let's see, lighting design by Brian McDevitt. Sound design by Jeff Curtis and Lou Mead. And costume design by Gregory Gale and Jonathan Bixby. The original Broadway cast included, I believe this is the full list, David Beach, Jennifer Cody, Rachel Koloff, Rick Crum, John Kalum, John Dial, Hunter Foster, Victor W. Hawks, Ken Jennings, a.k.a. Toby, from the original cast of Sweeney Todd, hello, Ken, Spencer Caden, Daniel Marcus, Jeff McCarthy, Nancy Opal, Lawrence E. Street, Broadway debut, we haven't had one of those in a while, Jennifer Laura Thompson, and Kay Walby. Kay Walby! Again, I apologize for any mispronunciations. If you're a member of the original cast and you're listening to this and you think, that motherfucker, he got my name wrong. I, I'm sorry. I said I was sorry. Tony Nods, You're in Town 1, Best Book of a Musical, Greg Kotis. Best Original Musical Score, Mark Hallman and Greg Kotis. And Best Direction of a Musical, John Rando. Beyond those, they were also nominated for the following awards. Best Musical, of course. Best Actor in a Musical, John Cullum. Best Actress in a Musical, Nancy Opal. Best Actress in a Musical, Jennifer Laura Thompson. So, two nominees within the same category there. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Spencer Caden. Best Choreography, John Carafa. And Best Orchestrations, Bruce Coughlin. So, ten nominations in total, three awards at the end of the night. This week, I will not be relying on the Wikipedia summary when it comes to relaying our show's plot, as I have enough experience with Town to pull it straight from the old dome. Bobby Strong is our hero. He's a good-hearted but conflicted fellow who, alongside Penelope Pennywise, oversees public amenity number nine. Now, don't let the name fool you. This toilet, which is technically made available to the public, is one of many that have been privatized in the wake of a terrible 20-year drought. When a citizen needs to piss or take a steaming shit, they are required by law to pay a fee and log their dirty deeds in a record book. 
Everything is strictly regulated, and those who break the law by pissing and shitting in their own homes or behind a bush are swiftly carted off by the police. There is no trial. There is no due process. Lawbreakers are merely taken to Urinetown, a mysterious realm that the citizens, free citizens, I should say, can only wonder and worry about. Bobby has lived his entire life under the thumb of this system, but when his father, Joseph Old Man Strong, can't manage to scrape together enough cash, the codger defies authority by pissing in front of everyone at public amenity number nine. This nets him a one-way ticket to Urinetown, a trip facilitated by officers Lockstock and Barrel. The cops and Pennywise warn Bobby that if he cannot learn from his father's mistakes, he is doomed to meet the very same end. Bobby bites his tongue and returns to work, even as the screams of Old Man Strong continue to ring in his ears. Meanwhile, a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed young woman named Hope arrives in town to begin working for her father, Caldwell B. Cladwell. Cladwell is the owner and president of Urine Good Company, the corporation that successfully privatized every toilet in society. He is a shrewd, money-loving bastard who has no pity for the poor, but Hope is only made aware of this as the show unfolds. When it begins, she feels nothing but love for Cladwell and is extremely excited to take her place in the Urine Good Company dynasty. While returning home from their respective days at work, Hope and Bobby cross paths and form an instant connection. They have a stirring conversation about the power of the heart and its ability to speak to us in times of distress. And in the process, Hope unwittingly inspires Bobby to revolt against her father's company. The next morning, Bobby promptly brushes Pennywise aside and opens public amenity number nine to the people, determined to provide free access so that no one, no one will have to live in poverty or fear, I should say. Viva la revolution! This, of course, does not sit well with Gladwell or his cronies. They sick Lockstock and Barrel on our heroes, and a desperate chase ensues, one that concludes with Bobby taking Hope as a hostage. The rebels regroup at a secret hideout located within the sewer system, and as tensions rise, the idea of killing Hope starts to look more appealing. Bobby manages to ward off violence shortly before Pennywise shows up to relay a message. If Bobby is willing to meet with Gladwell, the latter is willing to negotiate a peaceful resolution. Bobby agrees to go despite the misgivings of his comrades, and upon arriving at Urine Good Company is presented with a briefcase stuffed with cash. It's a bribe, plain and simple. Cladwell explains to our hero that unrestricted access to an already strained water supply will only accelerate society's demise, but Bobby refuses to listen or accept the money. As a result, he is dragged off to Urinetown, which isn't so much a location on a map as it is a roof off of which Lockstock and Beryl throw their victims. Bloodied and seconds from death, Bobby delivers his final words to Little Sally, a character I realize I should have mentioned by now. Little Sally is a precocious tyke who, along with Lockstock, routinely comments on the nature and content of the musical. She is also a member of the Rebel Alliance. There, are you happy? Stop yelling at me! Little Sally returns to the secret hideout and delivers the news of Bobby's death. This sparks another wave of violent mania within the group, a wave that is directly aimed at Hope. But fear not, fair listener, for Hope has a proposal. Instead of killing her and assuring the untimely the end, the demise of their revolution, why not make her the leader of the revolution and benefit from her privilege? After all, she has access to Urine Good Company's HQ. Pennywise, having reappeared at the hideout to announce that she is 
actually Hope's mother, supports her daughter's plan without hesitation, and the rebels take to the streets with murder on their minds. Lockstock, Beryl, and a number of additional stooges are summarily snuffed out, until only Cladwell and his assistant, Mr. McQueen, are left standing. When her father refuses to give up his power willingly, Hope has him swiftly thrown from a rooftop. Hope Cladwell, tough but fair. The show wraps with Lockstock and Little Sally reviewing what befell our characters once Hope gained power. In essence, everything went to hell pretty quickly. With no thought put toward managing what little water there was left, the resource officially ran dry and there was no turning back. Hope is subsequently killed for being incompetent. The end! Little Sally is appropriately horrified by the musical's conclusion, but Lockstock is like, eh, what are you gonna do? The cast reassembles for a reprise of the show's main theme, shouting, Hail Malthus, as the curtain comes crashing down. Now I'm sure many of you are thinking, ha, what a goofy premise for a musical. Also, what are you talking about with that Hail Malthus stuff? Please explain. I will. The Hail Malthus line is... I wouldn't describe it as a joke, it's simply a reference to Thomas Robert Malthus, an English scholar from the 1700s who wrote about political economy and demography, the statistical study of human populations. I'm not going to pretend as if a cursory glance at the man's Wikipedia page led to an understanding of his philosophies, but from what I can tell, this is what Malthus believed. An increase in food population may result in improved conditions for society, but that Improvement is only temporary, as an abundance of resources leads to an accelerated, unwieldy growth in the population. That growth inevitably returns society to the point before food production increased, preventing any real long-term progress. It prevents you from achieving a utopic society. In other words, we shouldn't help the poor by increasing their wages or granting them access to resources, as that will only lead to more births and throw everything out of whack again, according to Malthus. Them welfare queens are sucking us dry, essentially. Charles Dickens was a critic of men like Malthus, using Ebenezer Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, hi, 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 to demonstrate how their ideas were inherently heartless. See the famous Scrooge line, if they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population, ay ay ay. The Wikipedia page on Malthus goes on to compare his perspective to that of Thanos. <laughs> Fun! What does all of this have to say about the premise and themes of Urinetown? Well, everything and nothing, I suppose. Writers Codis and Hallman do seem concerned with humanity's largely unchecked desire to consume everything in its path, enough to dash off a Malthus reference and include a few pointed bits of dialogue, but their primary goal isn't to send us home thinking. I don't think this is a heady show at the end of the day. This is a comedy, first and foremost. So if we do happen to recall how our planet is being pushed ever closer to the brink, the laughs are meant to ameliorate our panic. Laughter in the face of dread and despair. That's basically the Urinetown ethos. Now, for the purposes of this week's episode, I watched a bootleg recording of the August 29th, 2001 original Broadway cast. Uh, the August 29th, 2001 performance, I should say, of the original Broadway cast. <laughs> I watched the 2002 Tony Awards performance of the song Run, Freedom, Run, 
I listened to the 2002 original Broadway cast album, and I will also be pulling from my experience with slash memory of my college production of Urine Town. I have also seen a regional production in Chicago, but nothing about it stuck with me. That was many years ago at this point. Uh, what to say about it? I don't really have anything written down regarding my college production of Urine Town, but I will say this. I was desperate desperate to be cast in the show. I desperately wanted to be cast as Bobby. This was late in my college career, and I, oh, how I hungered for validation. <laughs> validation, that's the sort of validation I'm not really seeking anymore, thankfully. I think that's all the better. I'm all the better for it. <laughs> but oh, how I, the summer leading up to that academic, that academic year, oh, how I read that script so much, and I, I listened to the original Broadway cast album backwards and forwards, forwards and backwards, and I was not cast in the show, despite the fact that we had a culture at my college that encouraged students to go to the directors of the shows that were going to be produced in the future. There was this idea that you should go to those directors, these professors, and say, just so you know, I'm angling for this role. This is before we've even even held auditions. If, if you're in college and you've ever heard anything like this, if, if someone tries to sell you on that idea, you should go to the director of the show before the auditions and say, you know, when I go in and audition for you, I'm really hoping to impress you and make you think of me as, you know, a potential cast member in this role specifically. If someone tries to sell you on that, don't, don't take it. Don't take it. It don't work. It's annoying and obnoxious. Don't don't follow through on that. A lot of people will tell you a lot of things in college when you're a theater major. Don't necessarily take it to heart just because they seem to know what they're talking about. Confidence does not equal accuracy. <laughs> That's all I have to say in regards to my college production for now. Let's talk about the overture. <laughs> to this overture for what must have been the 100th time, a question came to mind. Does any other musical sound like Urinetown? Because Urinetown is nearly 20 years old and seems to be in no danger of losing its singular punch. The overture is particularly impressive in how it establishes mood without cribbing from any one song. It's an original piece. Spooky, scrappy, serious, but silly. And if you told me it was being delivered by a one-man band, I'd believe you. I love that. There is a live street quality here, one that makes Town feel eminently more intimate and approachable than the bigger, classier orchestras you hear at other shows. TLDR, the overture gets me primed for play, and I am here for these haunted house melodies. Yas! Say, Officer Lockstock, is this where you tell the audience about the water shortage? Uh, what's that, little Sally? You know, the water shortage, the hard times, the drought... A shortage so awful that private toilets eventually became unthinkable. A premise so absurd. Whoa, 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 there, little Sally. Not all at once. We'll hear more about the water shortage in the next scene. Oh, I guess you don't want to overload them with too much exposition, huh? Everything in its time, little Sally. 
You're too young to understand it now, but nothing can kill a show like too much exposition. How about bad subject matter? No. Or a bad title, even. That could kill a show pretty good. Well, little Sally, suffice it to say that in your in town, the musical, everyone has to use public bathrooms in order to take care of their private business. That's the central conceit of the show. Jeff McCarthy and Spencer Caden make a dynamite duo as Officer Lockstock and Little Sally. Productions of Year in Town live and die on the timing and charm of their Lockstocks and Sallys. They clue the audience in on the show's sensibility, grounding us while always keeping us on our toes. It's not an easy job, but McCarthy and Caden make it look easy, taking what is already an excellent book by Greg Cotis and giving it an extra set of wings. If you feel inclined to imitate them, I wouldn't necessarily dismiss that instinct. There is a lot to learn by studying their tempo and delivery. You're at your in town. We'll keep that door. This is your in this opening number is concerned, what can I say? It's a treasure trove of glittering delights. Were you listening to that ensemble? I bet no one was expecting a show with a title and premise this ridiculous to deliver powerhouse vocals. I'm going to be quoting a lot of Holman and Codis's lyrics throughout this deconstruction, so I may as well start here. I enjoy the following line. This is you're in town. Your ticket should say you're in town. No refunds. This is you're in town. We'll keep that dough is a standout line, a guaranteed laugh. If you cannot get your audience with your ticket should say you're in town, it's your fault, not the fault of the show. 20 years we've had the drought and our reservoirs have all dried up. I take my baths now in a coffee cup. I boil what's left of it for tea and it's a privilege to pee. Nancy Opal's turn as Penelope Pennywise is star-making, and I realize she was up against co-star Jennifer Laura Thompson in the Best Actress category, but come on, it's no contest. Thompson is totally on point vocally and comedically, but Opal is a force of nature during her solo, It's a Privilege to Pee. You just heard it, for fuck's sake. Those high notes, my God! Just thinking about those high notes makes my eyes tear up. Can Sutton Foster belt out that shit? I don't think so, but she won the award anyway. For Best Actress in a Musical, Sutton Foster, give me a break. Back away from that medallion, Foster. It's high time Opal claimed the prize for which she is worthy. Back it up, Sutton. 
The writing and privilege to be is so, so good, providing what are arguably the best lyrics in the entire show. Twenty years we've had the drought, and our reservoirs have all dried up. I take my baths now in a coffee cup. I boil what's left of it for tea, and it's a privilege to pee. I'll never get over the coffee cup image. That is simply perfect. I kiss my fingertips and raise them to the sky, for the Lord's work is truly at hand here in this song. I saw gray skies foreboding and cold. I saw gray skies and made them rain gold. Now those skies are so bleak to behold. They're still gray, but they pay for your salaries tenfold. I took this town that formerly stank. I took this town and made it smell swank. I made flushing mean flush at the bank. I'm the man with the plan, and so whom should you thank? Boom! Mr. Clapper! Who, me? With the bankful. Oh, no. For that bankful of gold. You're a Tory and and it's cash that you got. We hope for much more. We really doubt it. You may be right there. Cladwell is low-key one of the more difficult characters to pull off in Urinetown. John Cullum makes the totally reasonable choice to play him as a wild-eyed kingpin, the sort of one-note villain who would totally throw his daughter under the bus if it would maintain his bottom line. Again, totally, uh, a totally fair choice. God knows, I love twirling an invisible mustache as much as the next ham. But I do think there is more to Cladwell beyond basic evil. In Act 2, when he continually underscores how dangerous free access to limited resources would be for society, I don't think that is a ploy. He's totally right. The problem is that he has no clue how to address this issue beyond throwing money at it. Cash is the only language he speaks, and it's a language that Bobby and Hope refuse to speak out of principle. That inability to reach any sort of compromise is what does everyone in. My point is that, though those protestations from Cladwell can come from a real place of desperation. Just saying, play around with the character, find the remnants of humanity within Cladwell. In case it wasn't clear, I'm not talking about the song Mr. Cladwell because I dislike it. I simply have nothing to say beyond, isn't this a hoot? Act one of Town is packed with jams, and while Mr. Cladwell may not be in the top tier for me, I would still consider it to be a jam. Jam status confirmed. If there's one thing I've learned in my many years of enforcing the laws of this city, it's that the journey down to Urinetown offers no surprises. Not even from the very toughest among us. On that journey, expect only the expected. Hell, it's a hard, cold tumble of a journey, worthy of a gurney, a bumble down, a slapped face, smacked with a mace, certain to debase as I stumble down. It's a path that I lead you only one place, horrible to retrace, a crumble down, a hard, cold tumble of a journey, jumble of a journey to Urinetown. Julie Cassidy went to a field behind a tree, saw there was no one who could see her pee. But me and Jacob Rosenblum thought he was safe up in his room. Didn't know the jars he kept up there would obligate a trip to a Europe. I love 
Cop Song. Can you imagine being a fan of Urinetown and not being a fan of Cop Song? The hyperspeed delivery, the pitch black nursery rhyme interludes, that left turn into sheer spookiness. Oh, and on a galaxy brain level, it's an obvious and necessary slam on cops, painting them as Cro-Magnon goons who get off on the power to dish out violence. Too many people spend far too much time defending the sanctity of the police, and Cop Song is a thumb in their collective eye. But cops protect the people. They have no interest in unchecked power. This song is silly and hyperbolic. We literally sell military-grade weaponry and equipment to local police forces, to local police forces. Don't trust anyone who helps to fluff up a cop's ego. Look, there's no need for me to belabor this any further. We have a musical to discuss. Cop song is great. Real cops are bad. Let's go! I spent way too much time practicing follow your heart in my bedroom. Oh, that salty summer leading up to that academic season. Oh, how it led to nothing. I should have spent more time working on myself as a person. That high note from Bobby on just laughter and gladness. That that high note was my roommate that salty summer, and we were on shaky terms the long salty summer. The thing about follow your heart is that it really shouldn't be wrung out for the sake of laughs. The laughs will come because the material is inherently funny, and if you milk it by adding beats or drawing moments out, stretching them out like taffy, you'll only exhaust your audience. You will lose their good faith, their goodwill. Keep this song moving and keep it reasonably grounded. Hope and Bobby are at their funniest when exploring their real sweet sides. Don't taint all of that with a wink. Lockstock, Sally, those are characters who can wink at us, but we must allow Bobby and Hope to be true blue ingenues. We will still laugh at their antics, have faith. Has this point of mine been little more than a subtweet of my college production, the one I was not cast in? Perhaps, but we will never, never know the truth because I will never, ever give it to you. Don't do this, Bobby, you'll regret it. Oh, I don't think so. Come on, Ma, this one's on the house for everyone. What's to become of you? What's to become of us all? 
Sky may be my favorite song in Urinetown. Yes, I believe that is a safe call to make, and so I shall make it now. Picking up my megaphone and screaming into it now. Best song. Highlights include this line from Pennywise. You get your head out of the clouds, Bobby Strong. You get it out of the clouds. I also enjoy this line from Bobby. There's a heart in the sky. There just is. Don't ask why. It's the sky. Bobby is the master of making up bullshit that sounds nice in the moment, and I cannot get enough of that joke. A little bunny at a toll booth. He needs a measly 50 cents. Our little bunny didn't plan ahead. Poor bunny simply hasn't got the bread. He begs for mercy but gets jail instead. Hasn't feathers in the air as the bunny gets the chair. See the model, people! Here is gay, boss! Don't be the bunny, don't be the dope. Don't be the loser, you're much better than that hope. You're born the power, you're in the money. Advice to you, Henry the bunny. Don't be the bunny. A little bunny at a toll booth. You heard me. But daddy, bunnies don't drive cars. <laughs> Don't they? No. Actually, I don't think they do. Live long enough, Hope, dear. You see many things. Even a daughter doubting her father? You're in town is pretty tightly plotted, so I ask the following question while admitting knowing it probably can't be answered. That question, should Don't Be the Bunny be moved to Act 2? Should we be doing some rearranging here? It winds up being a skip track for me because Act 1 already features a showcase for Cladwell. We've talked about it. It's called Mr. Cladwell. And this song, Don't Be the Bunny, it all feels like a retread is what I'm trying to say. I don't need to say it's entirely redundant as Mr. Cladwell is an intro to the character and Bunny is a deeper exploration of his motivations, but the songs will read as similar to audiences regardless, nonetheless, and I think we'd get more out of Bunny if more space was put between it and Mr. Cladwell is what I'm saying. Hey, I'm only talking out loud here. You know, do what you wish with the song. It's your decision. I should say I do enjoy the way Jennifer Laura Thompson delivers Hope's incredulity, her incredulity, I should say, I don't know, in the face of her father's metaphors. A little bunny at a toll booth, but daddy, bunnies don't drive cars. No, actually, I don't think they do. I like that. Oh, Bobby, why didn't you tell me you were going to start a revolution? Maybe for the same reason you didn't tell me you are Cladwell. So you can join us, or you can stand aside. Bobby, think you're standing on the brink. You'll be arrested soon, perhaps as soon as noon. And I could never bear to see you taken where the guilty peers meet, the toilet judge makes seats. You said to follow your heart is where my heart leads. Now I'll do my part to banish all When people be free, we've nothing to 
one finale is hilarious to me because it simply refuses to end. It just goes on and on, escalating the anxiety and mania of its characters until everyone is practically hyperventilating. Cladwell's obsession with what tomorrow may bring actually sounds reasonable once you get past his deranged metaphors. It's not wrong to think about the future, and Bobby's focus on immediate gratification is indeed short-sighted and ill-informed. But Cladwell is also a greedy, conniving titan of industry, so who is anyone to assume they know what's best? Everyone in Urinetown is out of their mind, and no one is coming from a place of reason. Trey Parker and Matt Stone would like to think they've cornered this market on, you know, none shall be spared comedy, that sort of satire, but they've got nothing on Urinetown. Nothing! Back of the line, Parker and Stone know your place. What do you think they talk about in those quorums they got up there? How good we are! So listen up now. Any second those cops are gonna bust in here and bust us up like a bunch of overripe cantaloupes. So I say as long as our juice is gonna spill all over this floor here, her juice is gonna spill too. Gladwell juice. Then we'll see who's better than who. Look at her there, all bound up, gagged and tied, with her head full of hair and her heart full of pride. Well, boys, I've had enough of each arrogant curl. Bing, bang, boom, let's get tough, playing rough. Snuff that girl! Snuff that girl? But killing people is wrong! Then why does it feel so right? <laughs> I aspire to the level of froth achieved by Ken Jennings as Hot Blades Harry. This performance speaks to me in terms of how I approach acting. That guy knows the meaning of the word restraint. He simply refuses to give it a second of consideration. He's all angles, all bite, with a wild howl for the moon whenever you need it. You cannot spell Ken Jennings without the letters C-O-M-M-I-T-M-E-N-T. Where's his Tony Award? He never got one, Jonathan. Well, that's bullshit, and someone should be put in jail for the oversight. Off to your in town with you. You listen to him on Snuff That Girl. You listen to Ken Jennings on this track, and tell me that man doesn't deserve a Tony Award. Go ahead, try and say it to my face. You will find it. It is categorically... You will find it is categorically impossible to do so. Run, freedom, run. Freedom, run away. My friends, you have to run, 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 run. Freedom, run away. That freedom sun will shine someday. Till then, you better run, 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 run. Freedom, run away. I'm frightened. Oh, as well, you should be. Freedom is scary. It's a blast of cool wind that burns your face to wake you up. Literally? Yes. There's a trickle of sweat, it's dripping in your ear. Still, you gotta run, 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 freedom, run away. Now, don't you fret, and never fear. Freedom's a one, 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 freedom, run away. Yes, Run, Freedom, Run is supposed to be my favorite song from Year in Town, but saying Run, Freedom, Run is your favorite song from Year in Town sounds a bit basic in 2019, doesn't it? We all know this is an ass-kicking showstopper. We don't gotta fluff it up any further. It's like pointing at the Grand Canyon and saying, you know, that shit's big. Look at that big-ass shit. 
Maybe this song has been tainted for me slightly after all of the sweat I put into it leading up to my big audition. You do recall that I wanted to play Bobby, don't you? I did, but alas, it was not in the cards for me. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about the art. Speaking of art, freedom is scary. It's a blast of cool wind that burns your face to wake you up. Literally? Yes, that's art. Frame it and hang it in a museum. Not my delivery of it, just those lines. I think those are funny lines. I see a river flowing for freedom. I see a river just in view. I see a river flowing for freedom. I see a river straight and true. Come to the river flowing for justice. Come to the river. I haven't spent nearly enough time doling out praise to Jennifer Laura Thompson. Her hope really is a squeak toy delight, and I cannot help but laugh when she goes full showboat for the purposes of I See a River, the show's big finale. It's meant to read as ridiculous, but I'll be damned if she is not singing the hell out of that song. Do I still think Nancy Opal should have won the Tony over Thompson? Yes, but please don't drive a wedge between me and Jennifer Laura Thompson, and don't call her up tonight to gossip about me. That would hurt my feelings. Bonus observation regarding the score, regarding What Is Town, specifically a song that we did not cover. The following lyrical chunk, which is delivered by Cladwell, always sticks with and tickles me. Dance, dance, do they think I'll dance? Those people with my daughter want to make me change my stance. Stance, dance, forget it! Never not a nine. I'll teach them not to take from me what's mine. I love it. And that's our deconstruction of the Town score. Normally, I would throw to our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, at this point, but we have a brand new $5 a month Patreon donor, and that Patreon donor is Roberto. And by being, by being a $5 a month donor, Roberto and a musical shout-out, I asked Roberto, who do you want to hear from? Who do you want to hear from? Musical theater character, musical theater performer, musical theater composer, and Roberto said, dealer's choice. You know, bring in whoever you think would be best. And so I decided that we should reach out to someone who has actually been on the show in the past. We've only had one other reappearance at this point. Dolly, Dolly Levi, has been on the podcast twice at this point. So this is the this is the second time someone has reappeared on the show. It's rare that spokespeople come back. But uh, we're going to throw it to this spokesperson now, and we're going to give you that musical shout-out. Roberto, take it away! doing? It's me, Shrek the Ogre from Shrek the Musical. I'm back, baby, here to deliver a musical shout-out to a new Patreon donor named Roberto. Eh? Aye, and I always thought to myself, if I was called in for a musical shout-out, how would I handle it? And I'm going to tell you right now. Hold on, I've got a bit of a sticky thorn in me ass crack. Oh. 
I got it. There, here, have a treat, donkey. Yeah, chomp on that shit, literally. Literally. <laughs> so I thought to myself, what would I sing for a musical shout-out? And I think I'm going to sing Happy Birthday is what I'm going to do. You know, Donkey and I were traveling through Ireland during the heyday of the Troubles. And at one point I made eye contact with a beady-eyed Catholic nun. And she sang Happy Birthday to me from across the moors while she was digging a very small grave. And I don't trust Catholic nuns to save me life. The Troubles were terrible time and I don't like to go into it. But Donkey and I agree that Happy Birthday is a beautiful song. You might be wondering, but what if Roberto's birthday has already come and gone? Well, if you're sitting on your end of the fucking podcast thinking that question, here's an idea. Fucking feck off. You know what I mean? Take a fucking short walk off a goddamn guillotine. Have your head cut off for all I fucking care. I'm singing Happy Birthday to Roberto and Donkey's going to eat my ass while he does it. I said that right, donkey. Yeah, you had to taste for it. And now you've got to have a bleeding gallon of it. <laughs> All right, pony on up, donkey. That's a little bit of equine humor for you. Happy birthday to you. Oh, that's right. Happy birthday to you. Aya. Happy birthday, dear Roberto. Yeah, yeah, use your teeth. Don't be afraid to use your teeth, you fucking wild beast. Happy birthday to you from Shrek and Donkey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you get a bit of a taper on back there, did you? Yeah, slurp it up like a fucking sauce-covered noodle. Fucking Lady and the Trap, Disney Plus, November 12th. Aya. Ha, ha. Oh, oh, Donkey. Oh, dear God. Oh, dear God. All right. Oh, final thoughts on you're in town. Okay, I adore you're in town. I have always adored you're in town. I have adored you're in town since college. I adore you're in town to this day, and I will continue to adore you're in town forevermore. My only major complaint is that while watching the bootleg recording online, I noticed there was exactly one cast member of color, and he had maybe less than five lines of dialogue. That's bullshit. Do better. I hope we do better these days. Stop defaulting to white when you know these characters can and should be played by anyone. Learn, grow, do better. Now, for your ratification. In 2002, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Thoroughly Modern Millie, boo. And the additional nominees that year were Mamma Mia and Sweet Smell of Success. Oh, get Thoroughly Modern Millie out of here. I mean, what do you want me to say? Punt it like a football, Charlie Brown. Say goodbye to it. Mamma Mia, sweet smell of success, you stay right the hell where you are because you're in town is to be crowned this day. Congratulations, you're in town. You have been vindicated. Now, of course, we must talk about ranking you're in town against all of the other musicals we have discussed here on the podcast. I will say that I did move Man of La Mancha from the number seven slot up to the number six slot, and now the number seven slot is held by none other than this week's subject. You're in town, so you're in town is between Man of La Mancha at number six and Passing Strange at number eight. As always, you can go to our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod, click the pinned tweet, go to the Google Sheet, go to the second tab of that Google Sheet, and you can see the ranking of all of the shows that we have covered here on the podcast. It's true. In regards to show-related ephemera, I would like to be indulgent. I would like to indulge in some design and staging ideas for a Money is No Object production of Urine Town. I would love the chance. I would jump at the chance to direct you're in town and if money was no object here are my following ideas here are some broad ideas my concept is 
Dust Bowl slash Grapes of Wrath and would swap out the show's traditionally moody, shadowy aesthetic for an arid, yellowed, tumbleweed-infested landscape, one that is routinely baked beyond recognition by the sun. Public amenity number nine, which is frequently represented on stage by a simple flat, would in this production be envisioned as a single-stall outhouse situated atop a pathetic dirt mound. Bobby and Pennywise would set up a velvet rope at the base of this mound, and Bobby would pull back the rope to grant access once a customer has paid. Shortly before the curtain rises, little Sally would be seen making her way through the audience, asking for a coins. She would then take the stage and deliver the necessary pre-show announcement. The panhandling would last a couple of minutes tops. An idea that would apply to every single group number in my production, in every single group number, the same cast member, every single time, will perform a cartwheel, no matter if they're playing a cop in that number, a urine good company employee, or a member of the Rebel Alliance. After the cartwheel is performed, this actor would then shake hands with a second cast member. Same two people, you get it. Even during the sad, sad strains of Tell Her I Love Her, there would still be a cartwheel and there would still be a handshake. I find this idea to be very funny. Mainly because cartwheels are overdone and I just want to really point that out. Those are my broader ideas, but seeing as most year in town productions take the opportunity to lampoon other musicals, something the original staging doesn't do nearly as often, often as you would think. Here is how I would tackle that side of the comedy. In a nod to the dream ballets of Oklahoma and on the town, I would have dancers dressed as Bobby and Hope appear on stage during their big numbers. You would first see Dream Bobby and Dream Hope during Follow Your Heart, and they would return during Bobby and Hope's frantic exchange from the Act 1 finale. A lot of costume designs would be inspired by iconic musical theater characters, though I feel the need to emphasize the phrase inspired by. It's no fun if the audience is led by the nose with obvious visual cues, and you wouldn't want to distract from the actual material. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't, is my philosophy. That said, here are my character inspirations. Little Sally would look a lot like Little Orphan Annie. Not in the hair. We're not doing, you know, a red afro, but we are maybe going to do a dark, dirty, burgundy Annie dress. There is no way this joke hasn't already been done in some other random year in town production, but it would be in mine anyway. I don't care. Bobby would look a lot like Guy from the musical Once. He would have a dark vest over a white, long-sleeved shirt. Hot Blades Harry, inspired by Sweeney Todd. Little Becky Two-Shoes, inspired by pregnant Mrs. Lovett. She would be a pregnant Mrs. Lovett, is what I'm trying to say. And Tiny Tom would be uh, sort of outfitted as Evan Hansen, complete with an arm cast. Basically, I want to invoke every show that has won Best Musical since Urinetown was nominated in 2000. Two, minus Thoroughly Modern Millie. I couldn't come up with an idea for that, and after a while I got exhausted. Some of these would be super light touches, while others would be much more obvious. And of course, if I ever was lucky enough to direct a production of Urinetown, I would not use all of these ideas, because at a certain point it's just an excess amount of ideas. But why not throw everything in? This is a brainstorm. There are no judgments in a brainstorm. From Hades Town, we would have these swinging lamps, and I would put those in the secret hideout of the Rebel Alliance. From the band's visit, this is one of my favorite ideas, one of my better ideas, I should say. When the curtain rises after Little Sally's pre-show announcement, you would see the band members, the members of the Urinetown band, standing on stage. 
in a line facing forward, holding their respective instruments and wearing matching light blue uniforms, much like those seen in the band's visit. The conductor would then enter after a moment of silence where we just watch the band waiting. Maybe we get a tumbleweed, I don't know. The conductor would enter after that moment and lead them to their onstage playing area where they perform the show's overture at that point. From Dear Evan Hansen, of course, we already mentioned this, the, the arm cast for Tiny Tom. For Hamilton, I like the idea of Cladwell being fitted for a stylish founding father suit in his first scene. From Fun Home, this is a very small touch. Hope would wear Alison Bechtel-style eyeglasses. From A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, dress Mrs. Millennium. This is a minor character, but dress Mrs. Millennium in a Lauren Worsham slash Phoebe Desquith-style dress from that show. From Kinky Boots, Give me a rebel in drag, complete with big-ass boots. From once, we've already established Bobby would be dressed as Guy, but he would also play guitar with the orchestra during Run Freedom Run. From the Book of Mormon, we would have the Urine Good Company employees dressed in black slacks and white dress shirts, a la Mormon missionaries. From Memphis, and again, this is money is no object, I would want a big-ass neon Urinetown sign in the style of the Memphis logo. If it's not quite obviously enough, Enormous? Then forget about it. From Billy Elliot, I want to have Dream Ballet Bobby dressed in traditional ballet attire. In the Heights, you know, give me that red shirt worn by Usnavi. Throw that on somebody in the Rebel Alliance group. And from Spring Awakening, I would want to recreate the Playbill's sensual pose during Follow Your Heart. Did I mention the majority of Follow Your Heart would take place on a giant rock formation? I'm not saying the rock formation would immediately call to mind the Lion King, but it wouldn't not call it to mind. From Jersey Boys, I want Lockstock, Barrel, and the members of the orchestra to be in the same sort of blue 1930s police uniform. So they're all in blue, but I want the sort of underling cops that dance and sing during cop song. I want them to be in burgundy cop uniforms that sort of evoke Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons look, that old school look. And during cop song, they would bust out some Four Seasons choreography. From Spamalot, during the final moments of Look at the Sky, we need to have Monty Python-style flags shooting out from the top of the outhouse I described earlier. Make it happen from Avenue Q. Give me a rebel, give me a rebel, who has a puppet and have them speak through it. It probably shouldn't be a huge eye-catching puppet. Let's stop at Fancy Sock Puppet. Why not, right? And then from Hairspray, this is easily my favorite idea out of the bunch. We, we gotta get the radio-controlled rat from Good Morning Baltimore and have it routinely cross from upstage left to upstage right. The first time we would see this rat is when the band is shown waiting for the conductor at the top of the show. I know that I said we might throw in a tumbleweed there. Now we gotta have that rat, baby. Gotta have that rat. Can you tell I just saw the film version of a band's visit, by the way? There are so many shots in that movie, very funny shots, of lone animals wandering about in the background, and I need to incorporate that into my staging of Urinetown. The rat would definitely appear during the Act 1 finale, moving in slow motion along with his human co-stars. The rat would also get a bow during the bows. Bonus idea number one, Look at the Sky would conclude by recreating Julie Taymor's Sunrise from the opening number of The Lion King. And bonus idea number two, I know everyone makes a Les Mis reference during the Act 1 finale, but having watched that bootleg performance from the original production, you know, the original staging, I rather liked how the rebel protest brought to mind Evita more than anything. Have Bobby bust out those classic Evita arms and watch the audience go nuts, I say. Those are my ideas. Now at this point in the 
show, we would normally take a ride on the musical Carousel to determine what musical we would discuss next week. But because we have a brand new $5 a month patron in the form of Roberto, he's able to stop the musical Carousel. That's what $5 a month patrons are able to do. The, the one-time opportunity to stop the Carousel and tell us what show we are going to discuss here on the podcast. And Roberto selected the 1980 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, which ran for a whopping 1,567 performances. That musical is none other than Andrew Lloyd Webber's Evita. Yes, that's true. So next week we will be diving full on into Evita. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, be like Roberto, and become a patron. Support the show financially. If you donate $1 a month, you can donate one, three, five, or $10 a month, I should say. But if you donate $1 a month, you get a weekly verbal shout-out. Let's do that now. Roberto, you're on the list now. Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. But you also get bonus episodes. Bonus episodes include coverage of the 73rd annual Tony Awards, the first trailer for the film version of Cats, and now, this is now widely available to our $1 a month and up donors, coverage of ABC's The Little Mermaid Live. That's out, baby. It's out. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. Roberto got that this week. You too can have that. Tell me who you want to hear from by giving me money. Coming this month, November 2019, the High School Musical Podcast that's going to be made available to everyone who donates $3 or more a month. If you donate $5 or more a month, you get everything I've already mentioned. Plus, you are able to, of course, stop the musical carousel and determine what show I shall discuss on the Vilba, on the podcast. You also get access to Season 1, 12 episodes of All I Ask of You, the advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. You also get access to our ongoing Broadway in Chicago series. And finally, if you donate $10 a month. You get everything I've already mentioned, plus The Snub Club, a special series, a monthly series dedicated to musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Coming Wednesday, November 27th, A Doll's Life, Past Subjects, Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooli, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, and The Bridges of Madison County. Your donations go toward the purchase of rare cast recordings, movie rentals, and pod bean costs. If we ever get to the point where we are bringing in $100 or more in total donations, I will produce M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. If you are listening to the show through Apple Podcasts and have yet to write a five-star review of the show, please do so. We are aiming to get 30 reviews via Apple Podcasts. We are at 23 reviews at this time, and when we get to 30, I know we will get to 30 someday, someday, I will record a special episode dedicated to Disney's Descendants Trilogy. Stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbean.com and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Now, last week I asked you to hit me up with your ragtime takes and Liz, listener Liz, fantastic Liz, reached out to me via musicalmanpod at gmail.com to give me her take on ragtime. She has seen, I believe, several productions. There is one key production that we are going to discuss here in just a moment, but she has a very deep context, I would say, at this point regarding Ragtime, and so we, we, we had a great conversation sort of discussing the, the highs, the lows, the, the merits, the, the valid criticisms that one may be able to lob at Ragtime. Great conversation. I loved having it. Thank you very much, Liz. I do want to pull this specific
specific part of our conversation out and read it aloud. So she is, uh, Liz was talking to me about a very specific production of Ragtime. That I'm going to just, you know what, I'm going to throw it to the email. Throw it to the email. Quote, one of the productions I saw was at our big regional theater where they always do this dumb thing with old shows. <laughs> I guess we're just going to be airing out the dirty laundry, spilling some tea regarding... That's my decision at this point, I guess. I hope you're okay with that, Liz. Oh, goodness gracious. So this theater layers a concept on the, their productions that will make it more relevant, says Liz, to a modern audience. And nine times out of ten, that concept is... We are actors telling you a story, which isn't a concept, that's what a play is. That concept most impacts the design, i.e. they use spare sets and props and the costumes are modern clothes with a twist or like they're in period dress, but it's vague and period-ish. True to form, in Ragtime, they wore modern clothes with period accessories for the first act. Then, in the second act, they were in full period dress for some unclear reason, until Mother sings Back to Before, during which she removes her corset during the bridge, unafraid to be strong, and we are back in modern clothes, thus telling the audience, with her clothes even, that we cannot go back to before. Get it, John? Get it? We can never go back to before. I hated it, Liz says. It was unnecessary. Though later, complaining about this moment, I once again thought of... <laughs> so Liz and I, we were talking about she created this character known as Becky, who learns from the basic lessons of Ragtime, lessons about racism, and she, she mentions Becky here. How maybe when that poor actress took her corset off in the most obvious thematic display ever, old Becky had a light bulb moment and discovered feminism for the first time. And I will say, obvious as it was, Cole House wearing a hoodie at the end of the show and walking out with his hands up was effective. Manipulative? Yes. Also effective, at least by the audible reaction of the mostly elderly audience. When I read that part of Liz's email, I nearly fell out of my seat and shit myself. It was, that idea is so manipulative. <laughs> That is crazy to draw a line between a character like Colehouse, who, you know, I know he has his reasons, but he is a murderer and an arsonist. I am saying, no, for God's sake, I'm not saying, no, no one should be gunned down. Everyone should be brought in, brought to trial, due process, of course, but it's just crazy to me that we would put Colehouse in a Trayvon Martin, that, that, that's the Trayvon Martin hoodie, come on already, don't do that. <laughs> That's so crazy. That is just not a line that you wanna that you wanna draw. It's making my eyes water. Oh boy. But thank you, Liz, for telling me all about that production. Hopefully you don't mind me talking about explicitly. Uh, thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny in the booth. Thank you so much. No construction this week. Construction, quote-unquote, aka making fucking handmade tennis rackets. Thank you, Alex Green, for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous music. That's that doorbell, yeah! You know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting, yeah! Comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long. Farewell. I'll feed and good night. <laughs>